Hi, my name is Rifki, and welcome to This Week Unpacked. A huge thank you to the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles for sponsoring this week's episode. If you're interested in sponsoring future episodes, be in touch at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. Okay, as we say in Yiddish, weiter, let's dive in. What did you do on August 13th, 2020? My day was pretty nuts. For one, I had a Zoom book club meeting. And I gave my dog a bath. Clearly, my life is a thrill a minute. But I guess there was one more epic thing that happened on August 13th, 2020. I'll actually quote the title of Thomas Friedman's op-ed for the New York Times that day. A geopolitical earthquake just hit the Middle East. Yeah, I guess that's bigger than my dog's bath. So what happened that made Friedman declare this geopolitical seismic shift? August 13th was the day that the Abraham Accords were announced. Israel and the United Arab Emirates established full normalization of relations. Bahrain soon followed, and in mid-September, the accords were formally signed. Since then, over the next year, there have been whispers of several other countries joining the accords, including Sudan, Morocco, and Oman. It's pretty crazy. And last month, Iraq appeared to be on the list of countries that would potentially normalize relations with Israel. Here are the words that were published by Iraqi tribal leader Wissam al-Hardan in a Wall Street Journal op-ed published last month. Quote, We demand that Iraq join the Abraham Accords. We call for full diplomatic relations with Israel. We are an assembly of Sunnis and Shiites. We commit ourselves to an awakening of peace. End quote. Pretty straightforward and pretty incredible. And the same day the op-ed appeared, Al-Hardan reportedly delivered the same message at a conference held in the Kurdish capital of Erbil, in which 300 Iraqis publicly called for the normalization of ties with Israel. But here's where it gets dicey. The next day, faced with arrest warrants and death threats from Iranian-backed militias, Al-Hardan retracted both his speech at the conference and the op-ed, claiming that he didn't know the content of either the speech or the article. Which is a weird argument, by the way, but okay. Other Iraqis who participated in the conference also recanted their remarks in the wake of the backlash. Al-Hardan was also dismissed from his position as head of the Sons of Iraq Awakening Movement. (sighs) What a mess. And it's honestly hard to know what to make of this story. Ultimately, is it encouraging? Maybe a sign of growing interest among Iraqis in normalization with Israel? Or is it discouraging, showing that Iraq is nowhere near ready to make peace with the Jewish state? And anyway, what's the history of the relationship between Iraq and the Jewish world? And how did the Jewish world respond to the Iraqis' call for peace with Israel, as confusing as those calls might actually be? I think it makes sense to start from the beginning. The Jewish presence in Iraq goes all the way back to ancient Israel. In 722 BCE, when the Assyrians defeated the northern tribes of Israel, they forced many of the tribes to relocate to other parts of their empire, including Babylonia a.k.a. today's Iraq. Then about 150 years later, in 586 BCE, the Babylonians conquered the southern tribes, and they too relocated a large part of the population to the region. In the centuries that followed, Babylonia flourished into a vibrant center of Jewish life and culture. It was the center of diaspora Jewry. Two major Jewish academies, called Sura and Pumbedita, were founded there, and they regularly attracted thousands of Jews for learning. When the great sage Rav Ashi, a leader of the community, became the new head of the academy in Sura, he, together with his good friend Ravina, began compiling what would become known as the Babylonian Talmud, which was developed in the 5th and 6th centuries. 
and for the next five centuries, until the academies closed in the middle of the 11th century, the Talmud was studied and expounded on in the academies. By the 12th century, Iraq was home to 40,000 Jews, 28 synagogues, and 10 yeshivas, or academies of Jewish learning. 40,000 Jews, that was 2% of the global Jewish population at the time. To put that in context, 2% of the world's global Jews are in the UK today. Not too shabby. So now let's go into more modern times. And by the way, I have to give credit here. Edwin Black, an American historian, has done intense research and writing about the recent history of Jews in Iraq. And we'll link to his books and to an article that formed a lot of the basis for this episode in the show notes. So during Ottoman rule, which was from 1534 to 1917, tolerance toward Jews depended on local rulers. The Encyclopedia Judaica says, quote, The Iraqi Jews in general lived under a tolerant regime and enjoyed relative freedom. The community was pretty independent. They administered their own schools and they were involved in local commerce and politics. In 1849, the Iraqi Jewish community appointed its first chief rabbi, Ezra Dangur, who was assisted by a lay council and a Beit Din, a religious court. At its peak, leading up to World War I, the Jewish community accounted for one-third of the total population in Baghdad, Iraq's capital. Jews even played an important role in the founding of Iraq as a modern state in 1932. However, things quickly deteriorated. In June 1941, as the Holocaust was underway in Europe and following the collapse of a pro-Nazi regime in Iraq, local Arabs murdered 175 Jews and wounded almost 1,000. Plus, they destroyed 1,000 Jewish homes. This became known as the Farhud, the Arabic term for pogrom, With the UN's passage of the Partition Plan in 1947 and the Declaration of Israel's statehood in 1948, rioting and violence against the Jews of Iraq increased. And Iraqi law even made Zionism a capital crime. Iraqi Jews, desperate to get out, started selling their possessions at a fraction of their worth, or they fled entirely penniless. Between 1950 and 1951, more than 100,000 Iraqi Jews were airlifted to Israel in Operations Ezra and Nehemiah, and others went elsewhere. After 2,600 years of Jewish life in Iraq, only a handful of Jews remain today. As for the relationship between Iraq and Israel, well, in 1948, Iraq joined other Arab states in declaring war on Israel. And then again in the 1967 Six-Day War, and again in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. However, things might be changing. In 2019, Iraqi ambassador to the U.S., Farid Yassin, actually surprised many when he suggested that there are pretty good reasons for normalization between Iraq and Israel, including a pretty significant Iraqi community in Israel. However, Iraq's foreign ministry quickly shot that down. They said that Yassin was inappropriately quoted by the media and added very firmly that Iraq, quote, rejects Israeli invasion and the rape of Arab land and that it stands by its, quote, principle of boycott. And does anyone remember back in 2017, the Miss Universe contest? To be honest, I missed the contest itself. Maybe it's on Netflix, I'll look it up. But I do remember when Miss Iraq, also known as Sarah Idan, posted a selfie to Instagram with Miss Israel, Adar Gondelsman. As banal as that sounds, it actually set up huge emotions. The photo was upsetting to some in Iraq, but inspiring to others. Idan was even sent death threats, leading to her and her family relocating to the U.S. She actually even visited Israel, where she and Gandelsman recreated their selfie. While there, Idan gave an interview to Israel's Channel 2 News, where she said, quote, 
I don't think Iraq and Israel are enemies. I think maybe the governments are enemies with each other. But there are a lot of Iraqi people who don't have a problem with Israelis. Which leads us to today, Al-Hardan's op-ed and the conference and their backlash. Is it true that Iraqis are actually interested in this relationship? Should we interpret this as a sign that Iraq could soon join the Abraham Accords? Or were those participants on the fringes of Iraqi society? According to Joseph Browdy, an Iraqi Jew and the founder and chief executive of the Center for Peace Communications, which sponsored the conference, the Iraqis' call for normalization with Israel represents a broader trend. Browdy told NBC News that millions of Iraqis want civil engagement and partnership with Israelis, but they don't feel comfortable saying so publicly. He actually cited some wild polling, which said that 43% of Iraqis were interested in a relationship with Israel, the highest of the countries polled. By the way, that was actually higher than the UAE, which polled at 42%, and the UAE actually did normalize relations. At the same time, Ronen Zaidel, an Iraq specialist at the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies based in Tel Aviv, was less optimistic. He told the media line that the event was not indicative of Iraqi public opinion, saying that, quote, as long as you have Iranian and pro-Iranian hegemony in Iraqi politics, and as long as Iraq is not stable, the normalization between Iraq and the Jewish state is very far away. Meanwhile, in a foreign policy op-ed, Dennis Ross, former senior U.S. diplomat and currently distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, struck a more nuanced tone. He argued that the conference was a reminder of two different potential pathways for the Middle East. He wrote, quote, One pathway is embodied in the Abraham Accords and offers a future where lives are bettered and people live securely in peace. The other pathway perpetrates the past and ensures a future only of conflict, despair, and hopelessness. The participants of the Airbill Conference have chosen the first path. David Dungour, a British businessman and philanthropist who grew up in Iraq, offered a more personal angle on this story. He wrote, In the Iraq where I was raised, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Sunnis, Shiites worked, learned, sang, and danced together. We lived side by side in peace and harmony. He added that Iraq's Jews played prominent roles in the arts, government, and in the economy, and quote, were an inseparable part of the country. Unfortunately, this all ended in the 20th century with pogroms, mass hangings, and expulsions. But the Iraqi Jews still hold fond memories from our past. Above all, we remember the people, many of whom sought and maintained good relations with their Jewish neighbors. Dangour cited Iraqi engagement with the Israeli Foreign Ministry Facebook page to back up his claim of the enduring connections shared by Iraqis and Jews. He concluded, quote, There is a growing interest in Iraq putting the past aside and having peaceful and normal relations with the Jewish state. Meanwhile, it looks like nothing is changing anytime soon, but Israel remains open to it. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said on Twitter, quote, Israel extends its hand back in peace. Further noting, this is a call that comes from below and not from above, from the people and not from the government. And the recognition of the historical injustice done to the Jews of Iraq is especially important. So where does this leave us? Practically speaking, it doesn't look like the Abraham Accords will be extending to Iraq anytime soon. The tensions between Israel and Iraq are real. Many Israelis have vivid memories of the Farhud, and the Iraqi leadership also seems unwilling to really turn towards a real partnership with Israel. 
However, that conference that took place in Erbil provides some hope that Israel and Iraq could one day rekindle that friendship that Jews and Muslims once had in Iraq. As the op-ed attributed to Al-Hardan states, quote, our guiding light is the memory of a more honorable past, a country that at its finer moments witnessed the spirit of partnership across ethnic and sectarian lines. Let's hope that those memories help Iraq and Israel move forward toward a brighter future. Thanks for listening. This episode was hosted by me, Rifki Stern. This Week Unpacked is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Make sure you don't miss future episodes by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to light up my life, which how could you not? Rate and review us. It's the best way to make sure other people find the show. And of course, you know, send them the show. You know they want to hear it. And of course, we want to hear what you think. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com. Check out our other Unpacked podcasts, like Unpacking Israeli History. Each episode, we uncover different episodes in Israeli history. It is amazing and mind-blowing. And every week, I learn so many new things. It's really, really, really cool. If you're listening to this podcast, you know how to listen to podcasts. So subscribe to that one right now. And check out jewishunpacked.com and follow Unpacked on all of the social media places. Just look for at jewishunpacked.com. Research and writing for this episode was led by Sarah Himmelis, and the team includes John Kunza, Avi Posen, and Rob Perra. Noam Weissman is the executive producer of This Week Unpacked. And again, this episode was sponsored by the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.